In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the second Sunday of Easter, a season that is 49 days long, a week of weeks to consider, to contemplate, to meditate upon Christ's resurrection. We have uh, 40 days in which we walk with Christ as he appears to the apostles, to all the company of the disciples, to the women, uh, to many people. And then we read that on the 40th day he uh, ascends into heaven. There's been a 10-day period that we are going to walk with uh, the disciples as they wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which is the 50th day, 50 days after the Passover. In this time, though, as we move from resurrection to ascension to the coming of the Holy Spirit, we won't leave the lessons that we learned during Lent, and we won't leave the, the repentance and the, the reason, the need that we have for a Savior, and the, the promises that come out of the darkness and suffering that we had contemplated uh, during the season of Lent. And so as a way of us holding in one hand uh, our need for uh, mercy, our need for uh, healing, and the promise and the glory, the grace of uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the other, and the way that those come together in the justice of the Lord, uh, we're going to turn to Job. The prophet Job is a wonderful place for us to sit and meditate on the meaning of suffering. And as Christians, we have to have uh, suffering foremost in our minds. We have to have suffering in our minds, number one, because suffering is an obstacle to people having faith. Suffering is an obstacle to people believing in a good God. How can a good God allow suffering to happen, is the age-old question. Another reason is that we are instruments of God and we are bringing the grace of God into the suffering of the world. And so suffering cannot be foreign for the Christian life. We have to be constantly mindful of the suffering around us, the suffering in our own lives, the suffering of our family and friends and of our community. And indeed, as uh, agents of grace and love, we should have a sensitivity to suffering around us so that we can reach out and touch it uh, with that promise of love. Uh, that Christ brings. Job, uh, if you'll remember, has been allowed to suffer in an incredible way. Uh, his whole family has been killed except for his wife who condemns him. He loses his children and their families. He was a wealthy and powerful man who loses all prestige, all of his wealth, all of his possessions are gone. And we find him at the very beginning of the story sitting at the city dump uh, full of sores and scraping his sores with the shard of a pot. And in the midst of that, three friends, I'll put in quotations, come to him and offer to Job that the reason that he is suffering this way is because of a sin that he has committed. They say, you must have done something wrong because that's why people suffer. This is a childish but classic understanding of justice in the world. This is the way that children think. Everything's because of me. I'm the center of the universe. If something bad happened, it must be because of something I did. It must be because of something that I thought. People typically don't grow out of this. It becomes a magical kind of thinking. These things happen around me because of the way that I thought or because of a word that I said. You'll find people in the workplace saying, don't say that thing because it will come true. As if we had that kind of speaking power in the world to speak things into existence like God. This kind of superstition is around us today and people think oh if I don't do a certain thing then other people won't do what they're supposed to do or a good outcome won't happen if I don't wear certain clothes or I'm 
in a certain place. And it's this kind of childish uh, give and take uh, fair justice that the friends of Job bring to him. You must have done something to bring this upon you. Now let's be clear, there are things that happen in our lives that are consequences for our sin and misactions, right? If I don't look where I'm going and I step off the curb and a bus hits me, that's the consequence for not looking where I'm going. We know that there are lots of things that we do in our lives that are the obvious direct consequence of our sin, and we know that the people around us can suffer because of these consequences. So we're not saying that that isn't a real thing in the world. But then there is suffering that is much more difficult to explain. There is suffering that happens to people that seem to be innocent. Suffering that seems to happen to people that aren't connected uh, with any kind of event. There's nothing they could have done or said that would bring the suffering that they experience upon them. And this is the kind of suffering that Job is experiencing. And his friends are saying, you must have done something. And Job is saying, I have to have an explanation. He says, I have to have some clear explanation. There has to be a reason reason why this has happened. And we get about 40 chapters of that until we get to where we're reading today in chapter uh, 42 of uh, the book of Job. This is very near the end of the book. And the Lord at this point has already come to Job. And he has told uh, Job's quote-unquote friends, uh, you have no understanding, and you're uh, leading Job into a childish understanding of justice that is really not the understanding that you need to have. And then he tells to Job, uh, you uh, are demanding an explanation, but where will I place you so that you can sit and see and perceive the way in which the world works? Where are you going to stand so that you can have an understanding, so that you can have a position of, of looking to see the creation that I have made so that you can understand my justice and my ways of working? He says, you cannot stand anywhere. You were not there when I created the heavens and the earth. There's no place for you to sit or stand to gain the kind of wisdom that you would need to understand suffering. And indeed... All mankind will experience suffering. We all will suffer loss. We all will suffer pain and sickness. And it will always not be easy to explain. And so uh, uh, the Lord says, there's no way for you to come into true knowledge. But your job is to bow down in humility and obedience to me and repent not of a sin that caused your suffering, but of the idea that you could understand me and my ways. Once Job hears that, he does. He repents. He lays himself down in the ashes and he bows down to God. He repents and he says, Lord, I have no way of understanding, no way of knowing, but I come to you and I give my life completely to you. Out of this repentance, out of Job saying, I cannot stand and understand, comes a promise of seeing his redemption that is unique in the Old Testament scriptures. Job experiences and gives to us the promise of a redeemer who he will see with his own eyes. Job has come face to face with God in this great uh, magnificent um, wind and power, much like he appeared to Elijah and to Daniel and to Moses in the wilderness. The Lord appears to Job and Job has this beautiful line. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He doesn't even say, I heard you. He says, I heard of you. So this is where Job started. Job started a righteous man who was righteous before God, only having heard of God, 
having heard of God's ways. That's where Job starts. But out of his repentance, out of his humbling himself before God and saying, I have no understanding of my own, he has the promise of a vision of God. He says, now my eyes see you. And so Job has been given a vision of God that we know happens over and over again throughout the life of the faithful. We know that people regularly see visions of Jesus. We've had it in our own community. We've had it in our own lives. We've heard and read about it in Christian communities around the world. Indeed, there are people today having visions of Christ coming to them and their dreams and waking visions. And they say, who is this man in white? Who is this one that shares his love for me? And as Christians, we have to be ready to say, this is Jesus. This is the promised Messiah who has come to redeem us. And so we have to be ready to respond when the Lord does appear in a vision. And so Job says, then I repent in dust and ashes. I repent because I realize that you're God and I'm not. And it's out of that understanding that God is holy and just and we are limited in our understanding and capacity that enables us then to see the Lord. And this is what happens in the Gospel of St. John. This is what happens when the Lord appears to the people of God. He appears to them in their repentance. He appears to them in their grief and in their suffering. They uh, heard him say that he would raise from the dead, but they didn't understand it. Their hope had been gone. Their hope had been dashed, and they were living lives of fear. We see that spoken to us clearly in the gospel that on the day of resurrection, the apostles are where? Back in the upper room where they had had the last supper with the door locked, right? Locked for fear of the Jews. And it's interesting in the way that Thomas gets kind of painted with this title of doubter, the rest of the apostles don't, even though their response to the myrrh-bearing women was the same, right? You remember last week when the myrrh-bearing women go to the apostles and say, the Lord is risen, what did they say? They considered it an idle tale. So none of the apostles, when they heard of the resurrection of Jesus, believed it on first hearing. They all said, what are you talking about? That's an idle tale. How can I possibly believe that? And we are now, when we start this portion of the gospel, John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 19, we're now at the end of that first uh, Easter, that first resurrection day. We're at the end of the day, we read, um, as it starts out, in the evening of that day, uh, the first day of the week. And if you wouldn't mind uh, and, and give me a little bit of time to speculate, I think we have to think what happened between that first early morning when the myrrh-bearing women appear at the empty tomb and the evening when Jesus appears to the apostles. What, what's he doing the rest of that day? And if you wouldn't mind my just speculating a little bit, uh, we get a hint in that he is in John's gospel in the garden where the tomb was laid. And he has this interaction with Mary Magdalene where she thinks that he's the gardener. And uh, he stops and he explains who he is and she tries to embrace him. They have this dialogue. They have this meeting. And the rest of the myrrh-bearing women are there, including the mother of our Lord. And I can't help but think that uh, our 
Lord would have taken time with his own mother to sit with her and to reflect with her and to talk with her about what it is that he's accomplished. She has been with him since the very beginning as she uh, first had the proclamation from the archangel Gabriel. She's walked with him throughout his ministry. She's never left his side until she's standing at the cross. She's standing at the garden at the morning of his resurrection. I can't help but to imagine that much of that day was spent with his mother in the garden explaining to her what it is that had happened and with the other women. I also can't help thinking about Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus whom Jesus had stayed with. He had been in their home and they had had this intimate kind of friend relationship and I can't help thinking that Mary and Martha too um, had received the Lord into their home and that he had appeared to them and that he had explained again to them what had happened. There are so many of these intimate friendships that we read about that Jesus has uh, that to me uh, it would explain a great deal of where he's spending his time. And then at the end of the day, he meets with the apostles in the upper room. Interesting that they come last in that sequence and that they're living in fear. It's very important that we hear this because sometimes we think, oh, when people first hear that Jesus is risen from the dead, they should immediately start acting like we see the apostles acting in Acts. They should immediately have boldness. But this isn't what we see in the scriptures. This isn't the life of faith. People have a progress. We walk step by step. We don't expect that when somebody is baptized or receives the Holy Spirit, they're all of a sudden a radically different person. Peter is the same Peter. Uh, Thomas is the same Thomas. Their personalities are in place and their quirks are still in place, but they're walking step by step more and more into a life of faith and holiness. We see a transformation, but we see this transformation over time that comes out of relationship with Christ. And so as he appears to them and talks with them, you'll notice that he gives them the Holy Spirit. So they have the Holy Spirit, he breathes on them, and then he gives them the works that they're supposed to do. See, grace is for works. He doesn't breathe the Holy Spirit and then say, now just hang out and be nice and happy and enjoy your life until I come again, right? He doesn't say that. He says, go and forgive sins. This is the work of repentance and baptism. This is the work that the church does, right? We proclaim the holiness of God, calling people to repent so that they can be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and themselves go out and teach others about the glory of God. And so he gives them this ministry. He says, go out and forgive sins, right? This is the work of repentance and baptism. And then, of course, Thomas isn't there. And we've talked about Thomas over and over again, and it bears repeating. Thomas is not saying, I refuse to believe. Thomas is saying, how can I believe? And I want to believe. We all experience doubt. We all experience questions about our faith. That's the human condition. There isn't any of us who had just have a totally unreflective faith that doesn't consider any kind of doubt. The question is, what do we do about it? Do we have the kind of doubt that says, I refuse to believe, I won't believe, I'll set up every barrier? Or do we say, this is what it's going to take for me to believe? This is what I'm going to have to experience. And so many of us set such a high bar for ourselves. We say, I would have had to have seen the feeding of the 5,000, even though those that saw the feeding of the 5,000, many of them didn't believe, right? I would have to see 
someone raised from the dead like Lazarus. Even though when people saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they didn't believe. I'd have to be part of the crossing of the Red Sea. Even though those that crossed the Red Sea afterwards didn't what? They didn't believe. They went and worshipped a golden calf. So we set this high condition for experiencing the miraculous when we see over and over again in the scriptures, this doesn't lead to faith. And so Thomas sets this high bar and he says, I don't have to just see him. I have to feel him. I have to put my fingers in. I have to put my hand in because he's saying it's going to be so hard for me to believe. And yet we see a week later, eight days, right? The the miraculous eighth day after the resurrection, where are the apostles? Still with the door locked. They've had the Holy Spirit. They've seen the risen Lord. Where's their courage? It hasn't come yet. That's okay. They've been baptized. They've seen the risen Lord. They've eaten with Him. They've seen Him in their presence. They've received the Holy Spirit. They've been given the commission. And they're still what? Afraid. Thomas is there with them on the eighth day. And he sees the Lord. And that bar was set too high. He doesn't need to touch Jesus. He doesn't need to put his hands in his side. He sees him and he proclaims him as the risen Lord. He says, my Lord and my God. He proclaims that Jesus is God. A full profession of faith. This is God who has appeared to him. And Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Because the bar for our faith is isn't nearly as high as what we think it is. If we will simply allow the Holy Spirit to pour over us, and we will wait upon Him, and we will dwell with Him in a life of faith. And this is what the apostles were doing. Here in Acts chapter 5, we see them now much later, after the ascension, after Pentecost, after they've received an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, after they've been practicing their faith in community, we see their boldness and their courage grow and become incredible. Peter, who at one point had denied Christ, now is proclaiming him as risen in the temple precincts. He who had hidden in the upper room and locked the doors is now out in public, in the public square, proclaiming the life. Right? the life. You'll notice that after they get arrested and they're waiting upon the the, the council, the angel that opens the prison doors, this is Acts 5 uh, chapter uh, verse 20, he says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This life. What does that mean? This life is a life of repentance and turning to God. Repentance and turning to God. They're explaining the ways of life to the people. And so they go out and they do it again. And then the council is scratching their heads and they come and they say, well, wait a minute, we arrested you. You're supposed to stay in jail. We told you not to do this. And the apostles say, what? They say, we must obey God. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you filled Jerusalem. They're incensed, they're outraged. And it's fascinating what they charge the, the disciples with. They say, you're trying to bring, bring this man's blood upon us. Isn't that wonderful? Their experience of the preaching of the apostles is condemnation. 
They say, you're trying to condemn us for his blood. But this is exactly what the apostles are trying to do. They are trying to bring the blood of Jesus upon the council. But not to condemn them, but for the purpose of Christ's blood, which is what? To purify them. But because they're not willing to stand like we do every Passion Sunday and call out for Christ's crucifixion and repent of it, to understand that he's died for our sins, to understand that we are bearing griefs that have to be taken away, because they're not willing to repent as Job did, they're not able to receive that grace. And so they say, we don't want his blood upon us, condemning themselves. Condemning themselves. And so St. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. Which, to me, if we were going to pick a new mission statement for Jesus the Good Shepherd, we're not going to. But if we were, I'd be voting for this one. Right? And I can't help but to think about our experience in the last two years where uh, our doors were threatened to be shut. Right? We were told that we had to shut our doors. The marijuana store could stay open. The gun store could stay open. But we were told that we couldn't proclaim the name of Christ. Do it online. Do it virtually. But don't meet together. And we couldn't do it. I couldn't lock the doors. I couldn't bar your entry into the church. And because we're small, hardly anybody noticed... We didn't have to pay the hefty fines that some churches had to pay. We didn't have the negative press because we didn't stand up and have the threats that were made against us. But brothers and sisters, this opportunity to obey God is going to come again and again. And it has to be our business to think about and to pray about how it is that we are going to have the courage to obey God and not men when the time comes for us to be threatened and fined and even jailed for it. I don't know when that's going to come again. I don't know what it's going to look like. But I know that we have to be prepared. We have to be prepared in the reading of God's word and the receiving of his spirit in our prayer together to know when it will be time for us to stand with the apostles and say, we must obey God and not men. So, they had courage that was not there on the first day. And this is the courage that is going to fill Samantha and Cassidy today. It's not going to be a radical transformation where all of a sudden they're different people or different children. But it's going to be that slow hand-in-hand -hand walking, that slow hand-in-hand -hand relationship that will bring about a courage, a courage that we could not ask for or imagine. The Lord is going to be there with you. The Lord is always going to be by your side and in your heart. And when you call upon his name, he will hear and he will listen and he will respond with all courage and all faith.